This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. There's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough or even if they don't. Today is November 22nd, 2019. It is Friday, Friday, Friday. Yep, it's Friday, and I am happy. I am ready for this week to be over. I felt like the last week, the first week back from the workshop, flew. I feel like this week has drug on and on and on and on. It just won't end. And I, I think it's because we're heading into the holidays. And I know some of you are offended by somebody saying the holidays instead of Christmas, but uh, Thanksgiving comes first, and then there's a whole bunch of other religious holidays in there that I don't really pay a lot of attention to, but they're in there. And then there's Christmas, and then there's New Year's. And so I refer to this entire season as the holidays. And I frankly think that anybody that's offended by something like Happy Holidays needs a, a new hobby, perhaps developing a sense of humor or something like that. Anyway, um, aside, I think it's because we're heading into that. I know I have a short week next week. I know I've got a couple weeks until my winter shutdown. I've got tons of stuff I want to get done. And now the crappy, cold, rainy, nasty weather's moved in, and it just seems like forever. But hopefully we will end the uh, week on an up note, because you know what a Friday is. It is time for the Expert Council Q&A show. I've got five Expert Council segments lined up for you today. Here's what i got. i got Derek Bonpietro on the installation, or the proper installation of snow tires which might be really important for many of you. It's not for me, but uh, it used to be. I remember when snow tires were a thing in my life, and then I moved south. And now I think it's cold when it's 42 degrees. Anyway, uh, next up, Mike and Sue LaPreeze are going to answer a question that came in from PA Prepper on MeWe. This is a fantastic question. How can those of us without children help support homeschooling and homeschool families? Love that. Next up, Nicole Sauce has a question on identification and planning for potential points of failure in a business. If your business, especially if your business makes a thing, does a thing, delivers a thing, there's things that can break. Even if you're a fully technology-enabled business like myself, you know web servers have a tendency sometimes to crap the bed. How do you identify the most likely points of failure in your business and prepare to have redundancies for them. Great question. Great answer, as always, from Nicole Awesome Sauce. How to find and vet a good local beekeeper from Michael Jordan, a.k.a. the Bee Whisperer, and the tax implications of, I, I'm calling this advanced inheritance. I don't know what else you would call this, um, but getting some stuff from your parents while they're still here. Uh, money, property, etc. John Pugliano will talk about that. And we're going to have a little segment from me about working with miners, not miners that make things come out of the ground and not miners that collect cryptocurrency from the ether, but miners in, is, in, is in not quite fully grown humans, small humans. Um, working with them as an adult without creating an excessive liability. This is actually a really great question. It has a really simple answer, but I think it also has a, a, a great way of analyzing a business and how you take a problem and instead of just solving the problem, create multiple value adds so that you can better sell your service. It's a really simple solution. But some of you already jumped to it. Well, maybe not because I know more than you. I know the actual situation. You don't. So maybe you haven't yet. But 
Let me give it to you. So maybe you'll be thinking about it by the time we get to it. Um, and, and, and again, I'll, I'll read the question in full when we get there. But the guy wants to work with kids as a tutor, for lack of a better term, specific to history. And is worried that, you know, in today's litigious society, he could get accused of something horrible like inappropriately touching a child, even though nothing like that ever happened. Or maybe saying something that was inappropriate that was taken the wrong way when it really wasn't, and the full context is now lost. So I bet you guys can really quickly come to a solution, but can you come to a solution that you could actually market and sell to make your service more valuable? It's probably the same solution, but how to present it. That's the key. We're going to do all of that more in just a bit. Before we do, let's go ahead and uh, start out with a quote of the day. This is from Hal Borland. Hal Borland was with us from 1900 to 1978. Uh, he was an outdoors-type writer. He's also a columnist for the New York Slimes, I mean Times. Anyway, uh, really good dude and did a lot of great writing over the years. And, uh, again, checked out about 1978, so we probably haven't heard from him any time recently. Uh, but he has a lot of great quotes out there, and one is about winter. And I thought today would be a good day to start talking a little bit about winter, even though we are still uh, right at 30 days from the first day of winter. That will be December 21st, the summer, or the winter solstice. But this is what Hal said of winter and spring as well. No winter lasts forever. No spring skips its turn. That's another way of saying this too shall pass. But I also think it is something that we should all be thinking about as we go through the seasons. Both the long macro seasons that are our lives and the micro seasons that are the individual phases of the year. For ourselves, many of us find ourselves starting to head into our autumns. And it's a bit scary. I, I was I was watching um, CNN for all the crap they do that is just useless. They have this these, this group of series that they've done that is really well done. And it's like the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and then the 2000s. I had seen all of them, and I was looking for something to watch on Netflix. And I've seen the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s versions. And i got to say they were nostalgic for me, especially the 70s, 80s, and 90s, because I actually lived through them. The 60s I have awareness of. For some reason, the 2000s ones, the first two episodes that I watched, made me feel older than like the 90s and 80s ones. Maybe because it really doesn't seem like you know 2000 to 2010 was that long ago. But they showed like one of the first episodes of The Apprentice with Donald Trump. And uh, for those of you who don't know, I actually worked with Trump and the Trump Organization as a consultant back when he was doing the, the original Apprentice, not the celebrity version. And so I have a lot of connection to that show. And he looked so young. And it made me feel so old. And all of the TV, like the first two episodes are all about TV shows and series from that period of time. All of that stuff made me feel so much older. And I realized it's because the, the, the hair is starting to turn like snow. But really what's happening is the leaves are starting to turn that color of autumn in my life. And so there is something to just appreciating your life in all of its phases. Because I think we get impatient in our youth and we don't value our spring and our summer enough. And in our fall, rather than lament the losses of our summer, we should enjoy the beauty of our fall. And in our winter as well. Uh, as for the seasons themselves, I see so many people do the same thing with the seasons. 
I hate summer, I love summer, I hate winter, I love fall, I hate spring, whatever. It's all money. Every one of our seasons in a temperate climate brings us a different opportunity. Yeah, it's cold out, but I have so much more time, I think, uh, this time of year to get a lot of things done that just don't get done the rest of the time of the year. About the only thing that I really dislike about winter is the, the struggles of taking care of livestock in winter. That's about it. Shutting water off so you don't get freeze damage and then not having water for your wildlife, your, your livestock and stuff. Other than that, there's a lot I love about winter. Um, and it's the freedom to work on things because everything is kind of in a downtime mode. And then there is the holidays. I love the holidays. And I specifically enjoy Christmas through New Year's. And the reason I do that, for those that are new to the show, have so much, uh, you know, so much uh, looking forward to with that. When I was in uh, cable installation, uh, central office installation world, this is going back into my early 20s when I first got started as a young man in, in, in professional uh, levels. Um, that time of year is kind of a time when you're a contractor on the road, they just send everybody home. You just don't work. You usually don't get vacation as a contractor. Even if you do, you, you save your PTO for other times. You just plan in that from about the 22nd, 23rd of December until about the 2nd of January, I'm not going to be working and I'm not going to be making any money. I'm just going to stay home. And I think because of that, what we always did in my family is if I had to take vacation time to do it, I did, and we never went anywhere. I think one year we went somewhere. And it was actually a really great trip. We went to Tennessee, my wife and son and I. But most of the time we just stayed home. And we just didn't work. And we were just together. And instead of taking a vacation where when you're done with your vacation, you feel like you need a vacation from your vacation because you're tired, we just had that quality time. We didn't spend any extra money, what have you. And I, I, you know, now I can do whatever I want. And I've been able to pretty much do whatever I want for the last 10 years. And I would say for the like, last 16, because the six years that I worked with, with Neil, um, I could pretty much do anything I wanted. I was a partner in the company. But we just kept doing this. And now, you know, it's just something that, may, that, that, that only happens this time of year. And I think what you should do in your life, if you really want to get the most out of your larger seasons, you know, most of you are past what you would call your spring. You're not a child anymore. You're in your summer heading to your autumn. And some of you are older, I know, like me, and you're in the autumn and maybe heading into your winter is... is If you want to get the most out of that experience in your life, you need to get the most out of your life in general, and the seasons are part of your life. So find something to really love about every part of the year and focus on that. Just a little positive, upbeat attitude for modern survival as we head into this uh, this weekend. Uh, with that, we're going to start out with something that's a survival topic. If you live in the northern climate and it snows a lot, especially snow tires and where in You know, not just do you need them, but how do you install them properly? Uh, this is specific to a vehicle, but there's some good general information with it as well. And, of course, Derek Bon Pietro is going to take this one. Hey, TSP listeners. This is Derek from AffordableDCGenerators.com. I've got a question from Nathan about some snow tires, and I bumped this one up in the queue just because it's a little time-sensitive with where we're at with all the winter weather coming in. Um, but I've got a bunch of questions regarding some Ford engines and working on an F-150. They are in the queue, so you guys are coming up shortly here. But let's get into it with uh, Nathan and his snow tires. Which tires should go on which axle when swapping over to winter tires? Background. I have a four-wheel drive Toyota Tacoma and a set of rotational, specific studded snow tires on a spare set of wheels. 
They're a couple years old, purchased new, and have wear indicators. One pair is worn to 60% life remaining, and the other pair is worn to 80% life remaining. When I swapped tires and wheels last spring, I forgot to mark which axle, which tire, and wheel came off of. Should I put the 60% life on the front and 80% life on the rear, or vice versa? Four-wheel drive is a near-daily occurrence where I live. Thanks for any info. Nathan, up in snowy Maine. Well, Nathan, I'm down in the very tip of southern Maine, right by the bridge of New, Ho- New Hampshire, going into Portsmouth. So I don't get quite the snow that you do, because up there in snowmobile heaven, it just doesn't stop. Now, I'm going to give you my personal opinion on this, because the general consensus has really changed over the years. And back in the day, the general consensus was to put the best tires on the front. And now that's kind of reversed, because what happens is by putting the uh, best tires up front is that typically the back of the vehicle will lose traction first, and then the vehicle spins out. Now, this generally is very difficult to happen these days because vehicles have anti-skid control and very good ABS systems. So if you jack the brakes and crank the wheel over, the electronic systems are going to keep the vehicle very straight. So this is my opinion. Your mileage may vary. We're talking about a set of rotational specific tires, meaning that they're directional. They're going to have arrows on the sidewall indicating which way they're supposed to spin when moving forward, and they have to stay on that side of the vehicle. So typically, if we didn't mark the tires, we would just take the best set, because the tread is is not directional, it doesn't matter which way it spins, and we just put the best set on the front. But since these can only go on one side of the vehicle without dismounting and breaking them down and moving them around on the rims, we can only put them on the front or the back. We can't cross them left to right. What I would recommend is that we're putting the best tires that have the most tread on the front. The front of the vehicle does the large majority, three quarters or more of braking, and it's the steer axle. So they're gonna be stressed out the most as far as the traction situation's concerned. So we want the front tires to have the most amount of tread and obviously the most amount of grip. Now, the only time I would ever modify this situation is if you had like a rear-wheel drive vehicle, like an old big sedan, like a Crown Vic or something like that, or a rear-wheel drive, two-wheel drive pickup truck, where even though the front still does the majority of the work, you're kind of at the mercy of traction since you're rear-wheel drive and most of those are a little light in the back. You probably want to have the better tires out back just for getting off the line and and being able to move in the snow since you are only rear-wheel drive. But that's probably not the best situation. So if you have one of those vehicles, I can understand if you put the better tires out back. But the vast majority of applications, you want the best tires up front. When I say the best tires, these are 60 to 80%, so they're pretty close in tread depth. I'd say if you got any further away from that, where you have one set of tires that are wearing down faster than the others, you might want to reach a certain point where you would want to put a new set on there just because you don't want to have a vast difference of traction capability from front to back, no matter what kind of vehicle it is. But 60 to 80, that's no problem. Put the best ones up front. Let's make this a two for Friday. Let's kick it to JP in Georgia. Question, what are your thoughts on using remolded tires instead of new? Are there any concerns and is it worth it? Background, I recently came across a Texas-based company named Treadright. That's tread, W-R-I-G-H-T.com. They process and remote all terrain and mud terrain tires since prices for brand new AT and MT tires can be very expensive. I wondered if remolded tires was the way to go without compromising safety. Quick comparison of BFG, KO2s, and Treadright's AT Wardens in the 265-70-17. The price savings were approximately $50 a tire. So if you're not familiar with a recap tire, and this was big a couple of decades ago, is that you would take a tire that's worn down and actually put new tread, new rubber on 
the tread portion that makes contact with the road and reuse the existing carcass, so to speak, the actual tire that mounts to the rim. This kind of went away for a while, but has been slowly coming back. And so Treadrite, I've actually owned a bunch of these tires and I've put a bunch on personal friends vehicles and had really great luck. I think they make a good product. They stand behind a product. I had one tire that did have some balance issues and they sent a brand new one out to take care of that problem. No questions asked. So they're a stand uh, stand-up company uh, as far as their customer service and their product line and their price right. So my personal recommendation is that these are a good tire and this particular company that I've dealt with before, I have no problem getting a set of tires from them. And I actually think I'm looking at a service truck uh, in the next couple of months. I'd probably be putting a set of tires from this company on that just because I'm in the same boat as you. I want to avoid that really, really expensive off-the-shelf brand new tire, especially if I'm just going to put a bunch of miles on it. Now, if I had a brand new Big truck, $60,000, $80,000, you know, they're stupid money. Am I going to go put a set of retreaded tires on it? Probably not. But you got a secondary vehicle or something that you're going to take off-road or you're going to burn a bunch of miles up on it and you're not necessarily going huge distances away, this is an opportunity to save some money. So I would probably go down that route and get the retreaded tires for your application if it seems like it's a right fit. There's definitely opportunity to save some money there. I've put some of these recap tires on everything from a Suzuki Samurai used off-road pretty much only, uh, all the way up to an F-250 that's going to be used for uh, work and, and, and heavy construction pulling trailers. And, and they've really done well in all aspects. I put them on a 4Runner that I did some, some pretty decent wheeling with and lots of highway mileage. They have definitely performed hands down and I just can't, I can't recommend them enough from that particular company and their tread design patterns are great. So they typically follow older tread patterns of just a couple years ago. So you're going to find one that looks like the old Goodyear MTR. You're going to find one that looks like the old BF Goodrich all-terrain. And those really, for what they do, an all-terrain and a mud-terrain, are probably some of the best treads that were ever out there over the last couple of years. And you can get these recapped. I'm not quite sure how that business model works, but it's pretty much the same exact tread pattern. So uh, you you're getting, a, you're getting a really good performance at a really good price point uh, as long as the, the recap tire fits what you're looking for. Bam, you just got yourself a tire two for Friday. I'm recording this on November 19th, and I just listened to episode 2550, and Jack kind of goes on talking about opportunities in this day and age, and I couldn't agree with it more. I've been working on a duplex trying to get it over the last few months, and the w winter coming up, seller just wanted to get rid of it and gave me a deal I couldn't refuse. And so over the next couple of weeks, month or two, I'm going to be focusing heavily on doing some rehab and getting some tenants in place in that property. And I don't think any real estate success is possible without the amount of information that's available on the web now from understanding economics and how things work and running businesses uh, that Jack talks about and to following people like, uh, you know, Robert Kiyosaki. You can find it on YouTube. You can find it in books. You can find it in blogs. Uh, it's Everything's been done before. And so the accessibility is just huge. And I just couldn't imagine a knuckle dragger like myself doing this. 20 years ago or 15 years ago, uh, you know, just trying to figure it out on my own. So I do apologize for some slow content on the YouTube channel as this opportunity has just presented itself. And I just want to go into the end of quarter four, 2019, full throttle for the win. Obviously kicking off the new year in the right position and jamming it to Uncle Sam with tax deductions. So having said that, I do apologize for being slow on content on my end, but definitely going to keep answering questions for you guys. I uh, hope you enjoy the holiday coming up and keep the questions coming. Thanks, guys. Good stuff from Derek, and I love a little bit about um, 
you know, opportunity there at the end. I want to say to any expert council member, because I know most of you, most of you actually listen to the show, uh, including episodes that you're not on, that if you ever have anything you want to add to a segment like that, no matter what it is, feel free to go ahead and do that. And the two of you that never listen to the show, I'll, I'll email you and let you know the same thing. <laughs> anyway, next up, I have a uh, question here for Mike and Sue Laprise. And I think this is a fantastic question. It comes from PA Prepper via MeWe. And it's on how those of us who don't have children, I mean, I have grandchildren, but I don't have kids of my own anymore, but how those of us who don't have kids at all, maybe, can help homeschool the homeschool movement and homeschool families. That is a great question. Mike and Sue, what do you guys got to say about that? This is Michael and Sue Laprise with HaloBySue.com, designing the life you love to live for the expert council. Hey, Jack. Hey, TSP community. Today's question comes via MeWe from PA Prepper. And he asks, what can people without kids do to support homeschooling and those who homeschool? This is such a great question, and we've never been asked this before by somebody who's not homeschooling, like help kind of thing. And we would love to help you help homeschoolers. The first thing I think about is when you empower the individual, you weaken the government. And it's like that Tiananmen Square guy standing in front of the tank. I mean, we all know he got killed, but you remember that image. And that's when you stand up for somebody who's homeschooling, who's living that freedom from the government for their children, then you're going to help a lot more people than just that one person. Yeah, and it seems so small, but our words and actions, when added together, can make a, a huge difference. Yep. So encouraging people, just encouraging them in their homeschooling that you really appreciate that they've taken that radical responsibility for their children because there's a lot of negatives that homeschoolers hear. So lots of positive comments would be very nice. Yeah. Um, so expressing appreciation is really good. Um, sharing your skills. Yeah. So one of the things is if you volunteer, one of the things you could volunteer for is a homeschool co-op, teach a class. Um, there's lots of people with skills we've mentioned before that we've taken our kids or our kids have gone to a work day with people that we know because they volunteer to say, hey, we'll take your kid to work so they can see what it's like, what we do. Or you go to a co-op and you teach about something that you love. Or you invite people into your home. There's a lot of preppy type homeschoolers. Oh, my gosh, I said preppy. I don't mean like prepper type homeschoolers. <laughs> And they they don't know these skills like canning and maybe hunting and stuff like that that the prepping community knows that they'd love their children to know. They just don't have an avenue for that because they weren't raised that way and they don't have any connection. So I think you'd be surprised how many homeschoolers would go, yes, please. Yes, and not just at your home. The libraries, a lot of libraries offer classrooms or times where homeschoolers can go in and use a facility to have a class. And same with parks. Parks have buildings that you can often rent for free if you're offering classes to children. It's a great idea. Yeah. So we, because we, I know we've really appreciated people who've taught our kids all kinds of things. Neighbors how to make airplanes and make cabinets and lots of things. I've got one. How about not a to do, but a, a not to do? Okay. So when you're talking with homeschool kids, one of the things, once you realize they're homeschoolers, don't ask them what grade they're in because yes. a, a great deal of homeschoolers never talk about grades, right? So if you ask a, a child, you know, what grade you're in, they'll look at you sometimes like, uh, I don't know what grade I'm in. 
And people think, oh, how can they not know whether they're in fourth or fifth grade? Well, it's because they're doing fifth grade math and fourth grade literature and yeah, and we've know. taught our kids to just say how old they are, and then people will come back. But what grade is that? So we try to get our children to ask them, what grade are you in? And only once has an adult responded, and he guessed, he said, I guess grade 52. <laughs> <laughs> so it's grades aren't relevant to most of life. So kind of skip asking that question. The question to ask a kid to get them engaged, and this isn't just for homeschoolers. This is for kids. It's not what subject, what grade. But what are you doing that you love? What's your favorite activity? Not your subject, because in science, they might not like science. But within that, if you ask them their favorite thing, they'd say, I like putting chemicals together. And you get a different answer if you ask a different question. And another thing you could do is um, gifts. So one of the things I think about is at the beginning of the school year, at least where we go to church and other places, I know do the same thing. They do the, you know, uh, pack the school bus. So you put together a backpack for a kid with with uh, school items. Uh, homeschool kids don't get that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so um, just being willing to help some families out. A lot of homeschool families are single income, and you know they're they're getting by. When Sue and I were younger, we got by. Um, and so yeah, anytime somebody was willing to help out with anything, we were more than you know, more than grateful for that. Yeah, and because we're old homeschoolers, we get people giving us a lot of things that then we can pass on to younger homeschoolers. So if you get connected with the homeschool community in your neighborhood or in your community and you start understanding what those things are that they're looking for, when you hear somebody getting rid of that, you can go, Hey, I know people. So, you know, some Schooling items are very helpful, but to me, more important than that in helping homeschoolers is giving them your knowledge because that's really why people are homeschooling, because they want their kid to have the freedom to learn what they want to learn. So connecting their kid with an adult who is learning something or knows something their kid wants to learn is super exciting for a homeschooler. And one other thing that you can do is if you are hearing a public school child complaining about school, or their parents. Or their parents complaining about the school. Uh, just make the suggestion of homeschooling. Just get the idea out there to them. Because the more times somebody hears, oh, you could homeschool, you could homeschool, it's not that hard, you could homeschool, it plants that idea in their head. And if, you know, I don't know about y'all, but we want everyone to homeschool so that their children have freedom to spend most of their day just playing. Yes. And one other note is most homeschoolers, they're super resilient. And they're not good at asking for help. They're going to figure it out. Yeah. But once you start asking how to help and what you can do to help, I think you'll see that they're open to getting help. Yes. Yes. Any <laughs> other suggestions? I think. I think we kind of covered the bases there. So, uh, PA Prepper, thanks for the question. One we'd never heard before. I love the idea of non-homeschoolers or people whose children are grown or don't have children wanting, wanting to help in the community. So this has been Michael and Sue Laprise with HaloBySue.com, reminding you that everybody is a homeschooler. Back to you, Jack. I, I personally think one of the biggest ways we can help is not just saying nice things about homeschooling to homeschoolers, but saying nice things about homeschoolers to everyone. Uh, especially when you hear somebody who's uneducated on the subject saying something negative, being an advocate. And saying something like, well, how many homeschool children have you met recently? 
and then maybe telling the story of a homeschool child or two you've met. I mean, recently, not recently, I guess a couple of years now, but when I was hiring a young kid to work here, I interviewed like two or three different kids, and I ended up going with a kid that I gave an opportunity to. He's not the one that put um, <laughs> gas in my diesel truck. It was the one before that, and I just felt that kid really needed a shot at something. There was a gal, a young gal, about 16, that applied, and I think I talked to her for about 37 seconds, I said, you're homeschooled, aren't you? And she said, yeah, I am. How do you know? I said, I can tell because you talk to me like you're an adult. And to me, the difference in what I see with homeschool kids today versus what I saw with homeschool kids in the mid-90s when I had a young child of my own is, is night and day. And I'm sure there's a lot of people that were doing it. I'm sure Mike and Sue were doing it back then because their kids are about the age for that. They were probably doing it before that. That were always like that little girl that I met. But it did seem to me that most of the homeschool kids that I personally met you know, 25 years ago seemed very, very awkward. And now the exact opposite is the case. The majority of kids that I meet that are homeschooled, the minute that I start speaking to them, and they can be 8 or they can be 18, And it's the same thing. They are at a level above what you would expect for their age. And I hate to say it, but a lot of the kids that I talk to today who are going to government school are a level below what I would expect for their age. Not all of them. I mean, I don't know, man. I, I got a pretty good mix in my family, and I think my family's just good at putting a foot in an ass. And I think that's a big part of uh, why homeschool kids... Uh, are the way they are. They're around adults, they talk to adults, but I also think since you're around your parents, when you need it, you get a foot in your ass. And in school today, I'm not sure that it's possible anymore in a lot of ways. I got, you know, my grandson will get some stupid, they call it a bob, whatever the hell that is, he'll get it signed because he, you know, talked when he wasn't supposed to or something like that. Uh, I, I guess that'll work on him when he's eight, but I think by the time you're like 14, you don't care about stuff like that anymore. Uh, when I was in school, You know, I'm not going to say that it was perfect, and I'm not going to say that it's good that you know the school have too much authority over kids. But I will tell you one thing: you were respectful. I promise you that you learned respect in school. If nothing else, you did learn how to be respectful. With that, let's move on. Uh, next, I have a uh, question for Nicole Sauce on planning for failure. Why? Because failures happen. That's what we do in life. That's what modern survivalism is: planning for failure. But what about your business? Nicole, take it away. Howdy, howdy, TSP. Nicole Sauce here with a question from Leos over on the Zello channel. Leos asks, hey, Nicole, after hearing about the issues this week you had with your roaster and the plans you have to ensure critical parts failures in the future do not interrupt your business at a crucial time, I'm wondering how you would recommend I approach identifying similar weaknesses in any business and developing action plans to mitigate them for lowest impact. Okay, well, unless y'all are on social media and know who I am or are on the Zello channel, well, you may not know it, but my coffee roaster broke on Monday this week. And by Tuesday, I had a replacement part and I had it repaired and I was back roasting, which meant zero orders went out late. And I think that that must have struck a chord with Leos as he's starting his business. This is one of those questions 
that I would answer differently depending on the business, but knowing where he is, he's in a startup phase. I'm going to come at this from the perspective of a startup or small business, like very small business. So first question is how to assess critical weaknesses. Second one is how to make action plans. First up, I'll talk about assessing critical weaknesses. Well, this is going to sound overly simple. List them. List your critical weaknesses. What are the areas where if something fails, you're dead in the water? And I would look at a couple of things like what's your supply chain like? Is Are, are there weaknesses there? What if your principal gets sick? If you run a podcast like Jack and you lose your voice, guess what? No podcast coming out that day. What about equipment failure? Is there any equipment that if it fails, you're dead in the water? I know I am when my coffee roaster goes out. And that's, <laughs> that's why I was willing to pay a $70 overnight fee for that part. Or what about system outages like communications? Phone doesn't work. Website goes down. Email. These are all things that you can just look at and say, okay, what are the things that if they fail, we can't function at all? And what are the things that are most likely to fail? And then you ask yourself the second part of his question, which is, what do I do about it? So the second question is, how do I make action plans? The way that's worded like kind of triggered me a little bit because a lot of people who talk to me about writing plans don't get started doing stuff because they're too busy making plans. I don't think he meant it that way, but I'm just going to say if what you're doing is writing a lot of action plans and not selling your product or service, you're doing yourself a disservice. That said, making a plan to handle the things that could go wrong is exactly the same as modern day prepping in your personal life, right? You do the same thing in business. You look at it and you say, okay, what are the most likely things to go wrong and what can I do to mitigate the impact if that happens? So we'll go back to your supply chain. If you have a weakness in your supply chain, like for me, that would be the people who provide my coffee bags. If I don't have coffee bags, I don't ship orders. If I don't have coffee beans, I don't ship orders. Therefore, I make sure I have enough stock on hand. But what if it's time for me to get more? And they can't. Well, that's why I have backup suppliers. So I know exactly who to call if my bad guy can't get me the bags. It's, it would be really weird if my bad guy couldn't give me the bags. But I know who to call to get something that's close enough to the same that I wouldn't be dead in the water. Same with beans. I know how many beans I have. I have a cycle for replenishing those, just like I have a cycle for buying my dog food in the winter, right? So those things are mitigated. I can go months without resupplying some of my things if I need to. If you have one of those businesses that's dependent on the principal, right? Which hollow roast is. If I get sick, coffee does not get roasted because I don't want to give people the plague. So what you do in that case is you have plans to communicate if something's going to be late due to illness. None of my customers are going to be mad at me if I say, you know what? I have the flu and I'm not touching coffee beans for a week. I'm so sorry, right? They'd rather have that than flu in a bag. Likewise, what Jack does if he's sick, he tends to put out a replay episode and he tells people on social media, gosh, you know, I don't have my voice today, so no podcast. Equipment failure, that's so easy to prepare for. You have spare parts on hand. The funny thing about my failure this week, guys, is that I was planning to buy three critical parts for my roaster when they go 25% off next week. And uh, so I was being cheap. I'll admit it. 
But then when the part broke and I didn't know which one it was, I was instantly number one priority is getting this back on, troubleshooting it with my vendor, figuring out what part it was so we could make the mail deadline so I could have it back up and running in one day. And that's what happened. So I think, you know, having the backup parts and having the relationship with your vendors, if you're dependent on them for equipment, is really important because then they're willing to help you through a situation like that, right? So it's one part backup stuff, one part relationship. And then for systems outage, the easiest way to have a quote unquote action plan is have alternative means of functioning. If my website goes down for hollerroast.com, that's about the worst thing that could happen because then orders don't come in. However, a lot of people know how to reach me on social. They know how to reach me via email and they have my, my cell phone number and they can text me orders. I got an order texted in today from somebody who didn't feel like going through the website, right? So while it's not the best thing when you have a systems outage of your email or your website or or whatever, if you have a backup way of reaching out to people, and if you know who's ordering things on a regular basis, you can say, okay, hey, I know you usually order milk on Thursday, website's down, what's your order? And then it's handled. So really, I think critical weaknesses, there are some in every business, and they tend to be in those four categories, right? Illness, supply chain, equipment failure and systems failures. And if you have an idea of what they are and you've thought about it, that's usually enough. If you take in the extra step and you have, you know, backup supplies or backup suppliers, that's even better. It's, it's just not that hard to deal with. Now, if you do have a critical system failure, though, there is something that I think is really important. And this is probably more important than being prepared for it. And that's what I would call handling your crisis communications. And that just means making sure you get ahead of the problem when you know there's a problem. And the first thing you need to do in that situation is stick to the facts and don't make stuff up, right? So if my roaster is down and I need to admit to people my roaster is down, I'm going to say it's broken. I don't know what it is yet. I'm doing my best to fix it right now. And once it's fixed, I say it's back up. But then the second piece of that is getting ahead of the problem. And that's where you go proactive. Okay, there's a problem. I've communicated there's a problem. There's this group of people who don't know there's a problem. I'm going to reach out to them now to provide good customer service so they're aware of the issue. In fact, right now is the time of year when stuff ships a little bit later because it's overwhelming with the holiday gifts, right? So right now it's my turn to time to start reaching out to clients and saying, okay, you might want to order a few days earlier because stuff is sitting in Nashville for two days at the distribution center before it goes. I think those things go a huge distance, especially at the startup and small business phase of keeping you up above water if you do have a critical systems failure or even if it's just a minor glitch, like a little extra time in shipping. Leos, thanks so much for the question, guys. You can ask me questions about cooking or preserving things, coffee, of course, marketing and small business. Happy to answer them. Just shoot those over to Jack with TSPC expert Nicole Sauce in the subject line. Also, it is the holiday season. If you're looking for a great Christmas gift idea, I've got you covered if people like coffee. So just head over to hollerroast.com. We've got a few special things this year. Of course, there's the Coffee of the Month Club, 
But we've joined up with a brownie provider that does a keto-friendly brownie mix to do a brownie mix that's keto-friendly plus coffee of the month as a package. There are only 16 seats in that left. We've got 17 pounds of Jack's Bourbon Cooled Sumatran Bean left. And this year I'm adding variety packs. So if you want to impress your coffee connoisseur, we've got five packs going out for the holiday season only. There are two options, spirits cooled and not spirits cooled. All of that is available, of course, at hollerroast.com. Okay, guys, I hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving and make it a great week. Next up, I've got a segment from Michael Jordan, the Bee Whisperer, on finding and working with and getting to know your local beekeepers. Hey, I'm Michael Jordan, your beekeeping pocket buddy from AB Friendly Company, located in Cheyenne, Wyoming. I'm taking your questions on bees, apiary management, and the making of fine meads. Well, it has been a successful year for us at AB Friendly Company, and what a honey of a year, right? With over 160 pounds of honey per hive this year, it's been one of our largest yields that we've had in over 12 years. It's been sweet with 55-gallon drums full of honey. And how do you know the honey's good? Well, I got this question from Josh. And Josh, this is a good question. I'm going to tell you what I look for and what I think is what's going to be a good apiary owner who sells a product. I keep telling you to get your honey for a beekeeper respect. So, Josh, what are tips on finding a quality apiary and what questions to ask to ensure the beekeeper is high quality? Well, first off, Josh, let's take the question, why? Why are you at the location dealing with a beekeeper? Are you looking to buy honey from a beekeeper? If you're looking to get honey from a beekeeper, you should be able to see how they bottle the product. They should be able to show you how they bottle the product, label it, package it, and use their product. That honey bottled for retail sale has to meet state and federal standards. Now, most cottage companies may, use, may be using a home kitchen. Look at the jar. See if it's sealed at the top. Now, mason jars are not sealed at the top. Honey is not canned or heat sealed. If so, it is not raw. And that's what you're looking for. You're looking to see if your honey is bottled clean. And the honey is not treated for bottling. A mason jar is three pounds of honey. Many people sell their honey in mason jars. Check to see if the jar is damaged. I like jars that have sealed tops. I know then once the honey gets in the jar, nothing is added to it, and it came straight from the hive. Now, how do you know it's a good product? Ask where the hives are located. Most, pe most beekeepers are, are required to be registered with the state by GPS location. You can see the hives by Google Maps. This will let you see what's around the hives, traffic, smog, plant life, sprays, and even feeding that, con that is contacted by humans, like in the city, because bees love soda and sugar. So being by a fast food or a corner store may need a little investigation to see if the bees are robbing from them. Most of the time, local hobby beekeepers are doing a good job. Support them. Let your local beekeeper know that you're happy to get a good product. Try many beekeepers and taste the honey. 
You may get honey from a few different locations and different beekeepers based on taste, what the plants are for allergies that you're trying to fight against, and cooking uses, such as mead making, baking, or even product making like shampoos, topical creams, and barbecue sauces. You should ask the beekeeper their treatment programs and how they deal with pests. A good beekeeper is using some form of pest control. You need to see what kind and if they're pulling the control method before honey flow. It is nice to ask about how old the wax is and how often they change the frames for honey flow. We go through no more than five years of honey flow before we change out frames for new wax build and splitting of hive for multiple times to make wax. Bees wax holds everything. It is like a super hair follicle test for chemicals that the bees are exposed to. Good clean wax is nice to have, especially for combed honey products. Every five years, the building of wax and mass splits will help the health of the bees and apiary growth. If you're buying bees from a supplier, there are some things you should ask and look for. This is one reason I teach commercial beekeeping. One of the programs is packaged bee cells. The making of nooks is a great product for a bee yard and installs. It is a good line of bees for other beekeepers to buy. When getting packaged bees, you're probably getting bees shook from a pollination stock of bees. It is hard to make sure that the bees are inspected for pests before sale. Many ranch and farm supply centers are getting into the packaged bee business for even bigger cash flow. So when buying 25,000 packages of bees for retail sales is good money. The selling of nooks is even a bigger cash flow. If you're getting bees, I would always get nooks. Nooks are small colonies of bees that have a laying queen with brood and a food source. When getting nooks, you should be able to ask if you can look at your nook before you buy. Look at the nooks on a Friday and then pick them up on a Saturday after they've all been back in the box. You should be able to see the bee yard and the nooks before you take them home. This should show if their inspections have been done. I like to have stickers on my nooks of state inspectors so beekeepers know that the bees are clean. And I like to have buyers see the nooks and that they're, that they're working. Many times you will not get this option. I would reconsider getting nooks or packages if I cannot see and inspect them or see a sticker on them before I buy them. I would like to see the nooks before I take them home. I have taken bees to locations and lost them in travel, having to replace nooks before installing them on site. Many times that I've gotten bees, I've loved them. But that does not ensure the bees did not come with pests or some sort of disease. So treatment must be made with getting them. If that ensures that the bees are good and that we're helping to install the bees, is good quality and how to do that is to work with the beekeeper and maybe even shake your own bees or pull a couple frames to get your own now there are many great beekeepers out there many are willing to show you what they have i understand the legal ramifications makes it hard to see a bee yard now i don't want to get sued from someone getting hurt in my bee yard that sometimes you have to make arrangements to see bee yards or to even visit some of the companies. Also, when a bee company is having a day of classes or site visit, go to it. Take the time to talk to your beekeeper and see what they're doing there. 
best is to give a good product. And they want to give a good product. Hardcore Beaks want you to get a product, so check them out. Always remember, beekeeping is a lost art, and many people are trying it. And they're trying everything from top bar highs to natural methods to small cell bees to, man, there is so much going on. The biggest thing that you need to do is ask why. Why are they keeping bees? Why are they using this type of sealing product? Why are they using this bottling method? Why are they using this type of treatment? Ask why. I hope this has helped you out, Josh, and I hope it's helped other people to kind of ask why and respect your beekeeper. Hey, smash the like button and share all our stuff on their YouTube page of mead making and urban gorilla living. Give us a heart on Instagram and support what we do with kids and check out the events and up-to-date news that we're going through on our Homestead on Facebook accounts. I'm your pocket beekeeper, Michael Jordan, of a bee-friendly company, helping out where I can. Remember, get your honey from a keeper you respect. Get it from a small business for a great product. And as a person that suffers from a brain trauma and mental health issues, Remember to help your fellow man. And if you need help and you suffer from mental illness, PTSD, or you just need to reach out someone to support you, hit me up, man. I have my hand out in the dark looking for you in your time of need, too. I'm Michael Jordan, and I want you to have a blessed day. All right, next up I have, I'm, I'm terming it... Um a pre-inheritance or an early inheritance, the tax implications of receiving property in one form or another from your parents prior to them becoming deceased. And John Pugliano is going to talk about that. Hey, TSP, today our financial question comes from John. And John is asking about his father that wants to sell a portion of his business. And he's wondering from a tax perspective, should he take his compensation in real estate? You know, what would be better for tax purposes? Well, John, I'll give you my opinion on this, but I also want to stress that you do need to talk to a tax professional, someone that is familiar with not only selling businesses, but also real estate and how that works into the tax code. Because while I personally don't think there's any tax advantage one way or the other, I don't deal with this issue on a daily basis, and a professional that does would know what loophole you can use in the tax code to your father's advantage. Now, what you may be thinking about is that there's a certain section called Section 1031 Exchanges that deal with real estate. And what the 1031 Exchange allows a business to do is sell a piece of real estate, take the profits from that sale, and not have to pay taxes on it. It's basically like an IRA. They get to defer current taxes on that real estate sale as long as they purchase and roll those profits into a new piece of real estate. So as long as they're constantly rolling those profits into a new piece of real estate, they defer their taxes. I think that's what you might be thinking about. And again, there could be some obscure rule that I'm not aware of where your father could potentially apply that to the sale of this business uh, because it is real estate owned by a particular business. You know, he were allowed to create another LLC and then roll that property into that LLC. He could perhaps use the 1031 exchange. Again, I don't know the ins and outs of that and how it works, what is transferring from one business entity to another. Now, assuming he can't use that, then 
I don't think it really matters one way or the other. And from a tax perspective, it really shouldn't because whether you're receiving a hundred thousand dollars in federal reserve notes or whether you're receiving a hundred thousand dollars in real estate or in some other type of commodity or valuable item, you know, from the IRS perspective, they don't care. They're going to look at what's the profit that your father's receiving from selling this business. So in that kind of situation, I would personally rather just have the cash. Uh, one thing that worries me about your question, you do mention that this is a partial sellout for your father. He's apparently still keeping some kind of ties with the business. I don't know if he's trying to work his way into retirement and just selling the business in stages. But whenever you're bringing partners in or whenever you're selling pieces of business and you're still actively involved in it, that just tends to introduce more complications and problems into, you know, a structure that may have been really run flat before. And now you've got business partners and other people's money involved. So I don't know your father's particular situation or how long he plans to stay involved with this business. But something he may want to think about is selling the business in whole rather than in part. You know, just totally selling it, getting his full compensation and walking away from it. One nice thing about taking the cash as opposed to real estate or any other type of compensation is that it's a really nice clean cut. If he wants to be in the real estate business, he can always take that money and purchase another piece of land that's not encumbered or involved at all with this business. And again, I'm assuming that he wants to move away and get away from this business. He may be selling it to a family member or he may want to keep some kind of ties with it. But, you know, me personally, I'm either, I'm very binary. I'm either in or I'm out. I don't like to be halfway or partially involved in, in things. Your father may not be that way. So it really comes down to a personal decision on that part of it. And then talking to a tax professional to see the best way that he can legally minimize the amount of taxes he's going to pay. It could also be something, you know, we're coming up on the end of the year. If he's going to be closing that out now, he could perhaps close a portion of it by December of this year and then do another sale after January in 2020, and that would defer some taxes into the next year. But again, as always in these situations, you want to be talking to a tax professional, someone that knows what they're doing and can really give you solid advice about your particular situation. Hey, a couple things here I want to mention. Uh, one is that I was unable to attend TSP 19. I unfortunately came down with the flu and I was unable to travel that week. I really miss seeing everybody. Uh, TSP workshop events are always a highlight of my year. I also know that a lot of you guys come with a lot of questions for me, and so I really apologize to anybody that attended TSP 19 and didn't get their question that they had for me answered. So what I want to make sure you know is, is that I'm available to anybody that attended TSP 19. Contact me through either wealthsteading.com or investablewealth.com. Let me know what your question is, and I'll do my best to answer it via email if it's something that we can't solve going back and forth through email, then we'll get a phone call scheduled and I'll make sure that you get whatever questions you have answered. Again, I apologize for not being there. I'm looking forward to being at the next event. And then finally, I want to mention that this is probably the last expert counsel episode that I'll get to comment on for 2019. And so I just want everybody to focus on what's happened this year from a stock market and an investment perspective. And think about this as you go into 2020. We started out January 2019 with the market in a slump. The market was down some 18% from the highs of September 2018. There was all kinds of fear and panic. Talk about recessions and inverted yield curves. 
and trade war with China and the effects of tariffs and the drag that was having on the manufacturing sector and on global trade and on the wage gap and income inequality and student loan debt and whether President Trump would be impeached or resign and all types of investigations going on and just constant negative, negative news, a lot of it directed at the economy. And yet here we are just about to close the year out for the last month and a half. The S&P 500 has been making at least weekly record highs and the S&P 500 is sitting well above 3,100 where a lot of people thought we would never get to. The fact is that there's not an inverted yield curve. There wasn't an economic recession. There wasn't an earnings recession. The Federal Reserve cut rates instead of raising them. There hasn't been an increase in unemployment. Uh, tariffs went into effect, but they didn't drastically affect consumer behavior or corporate profitability or cause runaway price inflation. And the strategy that worked for 2019 is pretty much the strategy that works every year. And that's whenever the stock market turns down or drops or falls below any of its major key averages, the 100-day moving average, the 200-day moving average, whenever there's a big pullback in the stock market, whether it's 7% or 20%, the key winning strategy is almost always, not every time, but almost always, the strategy is to buy the dip. And so when things are looking bad and everybody in the media is negative and things are looking real gloomy-doomy, that's not the time to panic and sell at the bottom. That's the time to buy and ride the market up as it eventually goes on to make all-time new record highs. Because in a growing, thriving economy, which is ultimately what the United States and even the global economy is, it is growing and dynamic. And companies that are profitable will have a stock price that's higher in the future than it is in the present. So my investment tip for you as we close out this year and go into 2020 is to paraphrase what Warren Buffett is known for saying, which is you should be fearful when others are greedy and you should be greedy when others are fearful. Well, hey, I want to wish everybody a fantastic Thanksgiving. For the expert counsel, this is John Pagliano of Investable Wealth and the Wealthsteading Podcast. This one comes in from Bailey, and it's my segment for today. Bailey in Pennsylvania says, Jack, do you or a member of the expert council have suggestions for how someone can cover their ass while doing a side hustle that involves working with minors? Details, I'm a history fanatic and consider it a travesty how government schools turn a fascinating subject into something unbearable for kids to sit through. I would like to advertise tutoring services to both put up some fence post cash and to hopefully make a difference in today's litigious world. I certainly won't want to be alone with someone's kid and want to document my sessions fully. Do you have any suggestions, or do you think this idea should abandon completely? Thanks. Um, so Bailey um, asks a great question, but my mind goes into two places. Number one, I don't know if your service is that viable for parents with kids in the system. Because you may want to teach like actual history, interesting history, and what parents are paying for when they pay for tutoring is their kid to get an A. Or their kid that's getting a D to get a B. So it's about making the kid get better grades. So I don't know if that's where you're coming at this with, but if you if you are great, if not, you know, maybe you're looking toward like more of a homeschool uh marketplace or something like that 
to, to offer your services. But I'll let you figure that out for yourself. I just kind of wanted to bring that up, that you are going to have to, if you're going to sell to the majority of the market, because most homeschool parents, as we heard from Mike and Sue, tend to have to push a little bit on economics, because usually they're one-income families. So the, the problem with selling to that market is you have to sell a low-priced, scalable product. So you would be much better if you want to sell to homeschool families developing like, uh, you know, Bailey's Lessons in History or something that's uh, all uh, on video or something like that. So they can buy for 25 bucks and get, you know, 80 hours of, of content. That would be a better product for that market. Um, but assuming you want to do this for the typical marketplace and we're just going to address your concern, video it. Video is cheap to do anymore. And we don't need super awesome lighting. And we don't need super awesome cameras. We could do all of this with a smartphone. And then have or set up for your parents a YouTube channel that you set to 100% private so that they only share it if they want to. Or have them give you the login for a YouTube channel they have or whatever. One way or another, you put this on YouTube and they get a link to every lesson. And all you need then is a, a tripod, a smartphone, including an old one, right? If you don't want to, like, tie up your phone that you use, you know, an older iPhone or something like that that still has Wi-Fi capability. It's all that you need for this. And set it up and hit record and, you know, record your hour-long sessions. And then upload them and give every single one of them to the parents. And this covers you from anything that's misunderstood or whatever or any claims of something or any retroactive selective amnesia memories or something like that because it happens. It happens. And some of the times the way that people get accused of something that they didn't do is somebody else did it. And the person who's been victimized sometimes substitutes the other person in there. Sometimes people are just crazy. And sometimes parents convince children that something happened when it didn't. Like, this stuff all happens. I'll, not involving um, a child-adult issue, but I'll tell you something that happened to me many, many years ago. There was a girl that, I, that, was, that lived where I did. She didn't go to my school. She went to a nearby school. And she became obsessed with me, like almost swim-fan-level obsession when I was in high school. And, you know, I joined the Army and left. And I want to be clear that I had no relationship with this girl other than I knew her name and I knew her obsession existed. Like, it was such an unhealthy obsession that I wouldn't even be friendly because it was very clear. It was, I don't know what it was, but it was a thing. Well, I ended up getting a notification while deployed that I was being sued for paternity, uh, basically that I was going to have to pay child support and that I had a child with this girl who not only did I never have sex with, I never went on a date with, I never held her hand, I never touched her, I never had anything to do with her at all. And what made the whole thing go away without even doing any blood testing is the way this would have worked out for her to have been pregnant by me, 
based on the last time I had been in the United States of America, she would have had to have a baby 13 months after she got pregnant. In other words, she would have had to have the gestation period of like an elephant. So that eventually made it go away, and I had to deal, you know, deal with it through JAG and stuff like that. Um, so I know crazy shit happens. And she, she was pregnant. She did have a baby. It just wasn't anything to do with me at all. Like, it was literally physically impossible. And yet still the story was made up, and it still caused issues even when it was that easy. Like, okay, well, how old is this kid? Okay, that means the kid was born here. Uh, the last time I was in the country was here. This doesn't work. And it still required some bullshit. So I, I totally get you wanting to cover your ass. But now how do we take the problem that becomes the solution and make the solution a marketing solution? Well, I would sell that. We video every session, 100% of it. That way, one, you know what's going on with your kid if you're not going to sit through the whole session. Two, you or your child can review the lessons. So if there's something they're not understanding, they can go back and watch it. Three, you can determine whether or not these lessons are working for your child. And I would say that anybody doing anything with minors, and, and I hate to say this, but I, it's almost any time where you would have male and female together, even as adults, where there's no third party present, something like this should be going on. And I know that, you know, there's this whole, we should believe the woman and everything. Again, having been on the other side of that mentality, even with it being very easy to prove that, okay, this thing just isn't a thing. I have a sympathy for men in particular put into this situation. And I, you know, I'm not the guy that touts any politician at all. But when Vice President Pence was mocked, because he refused to be alone with any women other than his wife. It was really interesting how quick it was shown the wisdom of that with the whole Me Too movement, which I think is, is basically a dangerous thing. I'm all for men that, that attack women going to prison, or worse. Okay, I'm all for men that sexually harass suffering consequences. I am totally against a society where an accusation equals guilt. And when a child is involved, there is a, it's almost like the woman, would believe the woman, believe the accuser on steroids. And I personally know somebody from this audience. I don't know them personally, personally. I know them like through correspondence who was accused of molesting a child who I know didn't do it who was eventually cleared on it. And I don't want to get into the details, but I know from hearing from that person that it was the most devastating thing that ever happened in his life. And even after being completely and totally exonerated, he ended up moving like five states away because it destroyed his reputation even when it was, again, not just he's not guilty, proven to have been a fallacious accusation. So definitely cover your ass with video. That's, that's what I would do. And, and those of you that think that it's not that common that things like this happen, it, it does. And there's a great movie about to come out right now. 
I don't know if it's called Richard Jewell or it's called something else, but it's about a gentleman named Richard Jewell. Totally different scenario. Um, saved a lot of lives. He was a security guard in the 96 Atlanta Olympics. And some of you may be old enough or not old enough to remember. Many of you are old enough to remember. What happened is he discovered these bombs, and he went, Hey, there's bombs here. And they got everybody out and dealt with the, the bombs. But a lot of people would have been injured and possibly killed had he not done what he did. The FBI ended up suspecting him and clearing him in only a few days' time. But in that time, the press destroyed him. And he died in his early 40s, in 04 or 07, of kidney disease and heart failure and everything. He was an obese man. I'm, and I'm pretty sure having his life destroyed didn't help. I'm not saying it's what killed him, but it sure as hell didn't help. This is the type of thing that can happen to people. So, Bailey, you're right to be concerned. But what you do is you find a solution to the issue. You don't let an issue prevent you from taking an action. With that, we've wrapped up another episode. I want to remind you guys that uh, I do have a sale going on MSB this week. We're doing the Thanksgiving sale early. Discount code is TURKEY. You have the weekend and Monday. Monday will be the last day of the sale. And you know me with sales. I believe in integrity. I don't bullshit you. So I don't care if you tell me on Tuesday morning, you just found out, and your dog ate your discount code. The discount code will not work after midnight, Central Standard Time, on Monday. You have right now the ability to join with discount code TURKEY for $30 a year. If you can't get your money back, plus make a profit on $30 a year on MSB, you're just not trying. Because I guarantee you, just as you start looking at seeds... For planting in the spring, you can get a third of that money back easy with the discounts we have just on seeds and plants. So definitely consider joining. Go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on members and sign up. Again, the discount code is turkey. We're doing our turkey sale in the week before turkey week. So that during turkey week, you can spend time with your family and using other people's sales and having arguments about politics and religion that you shouldn't be having and getting drunk and watching football instead of worrying about my sale. All right. With that, also, the other way you can support us, you do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Uh, my item of the day for you today is a really simple one. These are um, ear wipes for your dogs. So if you don't have dogs, or maybe cats, I don't know. I've never tried to use these on a cat. Um, but definitely dogs is what they're made for. Uh, if you don't have dogs, this one isn't for you. If you do, you need this. Um, these have eucalyptus and aloe vera in them, and they are the best thing I've ever found. I clean two of my dogs, Lucy and Charlie, my pit mix and my, my husky mix. I clean their ears once a month. That's all they need. Occasionally I might see them like shaking their head or whatever and give them a supplemental cleaning. And they've never been much of a problem. Max, my big German shepherd, baby puppy, 150-pound baby whimpering puppy when he gets his ears cleaned. He used to have so many ear problems. I got these. I cleaned his ears with them every day for a week. Then I cleaned them every week for a month, and now he's on twice a month, and he has no problems anymore. These things are amazing. And my little tip for you, none of my dogs like their ears cleaned. The two of them are okay with it, but Max is a big baby, sulking 150-pound puppy. But as soon as they're done, they get like a chicken jerky or a dog biscuit or whatever. Any procedure you have to do with your dogs, that's going to be especially a regular thing, monthly, weekly, whatever, as soon as it's over, give them a nummy. Because then what they're thinking is, I don't like this, but I'm going to get me some chicken jerky. I like me some chicken jerky. And I know when I get this done, 
I get some chicken jerky. So uh, Max is a big, giant baby. But Lucy and Charlie now actually, like, when they see the thing come out to get their ears cleaned, they're all happy. <laughs> okay, I'm going to get my ears cleaned. So um, you can train that into an animal. Some of them, yeah, like I said, some, some animals defy training, uh, at least parts of training. But these things are great. AromaCare ear wipes, a hundred of them are like eight bucks. And if you have one dog, it's going to be well over a year's worth of them. Even with, with three dogs, it lasts me more than a year. The reason I even brought them around today, I finally just wore out another container of them, and I had to buy some more, so it made me think about it. But uh, you don't want stinky ear in your dogs and cats? Use these things. They work really well. And you can always support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. Next up, we have our song of the day. This one from Heart. Well, this is old school heart, 1970s heart. This is when Nancy and Ann Wilson were really good looking, just to be blunt. Um, and this song has one of the coolest guitar intros of any song ever. It is, of course, Barracuda. Now, I never knew what this song was about. I always thought this song was about like a, like a player type of guy. You know, that, that strung women along and stuff like that and what have you. And it is about a guy. But remember, this is Music Business, Music Week? Yeah. Um, the record label that Nancy and Ann Wilson and the rest of the Heart Band were signed to uh, did a lot of things that pissed them off. And eventually, they ran an advertisement that insinuated, because, well, the male mind, that Nancy and Ann, while sisters, were lesbian lovers. And somebody came up to, I don't remember if it was Nancy or Ann, one of the two of them asked, him about, asked her about her lover, and she thought it was actually the guitarist that she was actually involved with in the band at the time, and then figured out what was going on. Like, where the hell did you get this idea? And went and found this advertisement, and then went and wrote this song that night. This song is about how music executives will say anything, do anything, with no respect for the artist whatsoever, just to sell records, and if it sells records, it's okay. You know, I could have done without knowing that about this song. I could have done with this song just kind of being the great kick-ass rock song that it is. And I'll tell you that on top of all that, that is why I made sure I held it till Friday, because this is a Friday song, and it kind of makes me want to go buy a classic Barracuda and drive it, even though it has absolutely nothing to do with that. With that, I hope you enjoy your weekend. Remember, winter is coming. It always does. So start getting prepared now. With that, it's been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.